All right, everybody. It's Dan, and that was a little bit of Fisk with Running Through the Night. I hope you enjoyed him. And now, that's the end of our French heavy metal from the 1980s show. And it's now time for Eventually Super Train. How are you? I'm Dan. Welcome to Eventually Super Train episode 63, the short-lived TV show podcast, covering three shows, one episode at a time. Eventually, we will get to Super Train. Thank you so much for listening. What are we up to in this episode? Let's see. We are beginning with myself and my friend Amy the Conqueror discussing episode two of Erie, Indiana from 1991. Then I will be discussing episode two of The Last Precinct from April of 1986. And then Mitchell Hadley and myself will be discussing episode 19 of Bourbon Street Beat from, I believe, February of 1960. And it's going to be great. And it's going to be awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's over. Okay, yeah. Here you go, guys. Erie, Indiana. Erie, Indiana. Day 45. I knew my hometown was going to be different from where I grew up in New Jersey. But this is ridiculous. Nobody believes me. But Erie is the center of weirdness for the entire planet. Item. A guy that looks suspiciously like Elvis lives on my paper route. Thank you, little paper boy. Item. Bigfoot eats out of my trash. Item. A bizarre housewife cult in town has been sealing up their kids in giant rubber kitchenware so they don't age. And now, just when I thought things couldn't get any worse, I discovered that in Erie, even man's best friend is up to no good. When I try to tell this to my family, they just think I'm weird. Better weird than dead. again hey everyone it's dan erie indiana episode two the retainer september 22nd 1991 written by uh carl schaefer and jose rivera uh directed by joe dante exact exactly the same as the first episode and i have here someone you want to get to know someone you want to hear all about someone who is awesome amy the conqueror amy how are you i'm good dan how are you I'm doing okay. I uh, I'm excited. We I think we both really enjoyed the first episode of Erie, Indiana. I would like you yes, to, absolutely. if you don't mind, I'd like you to give a little breakdown. And while you're giving the breakdown, I'm going to sit back and just space out for a few minutes. So yell yell out when you're at the end. No, you don't have to do that. Um, <laughs> but get, please give us a little breakdown for the episode, The Retainer, and then we'll dive in and um, discuss what we thought about it. Okay, and uh, this episode, a friend of Marshall and Simon named Steve Konkaluski, which I really liked the name. I thought it was pretty funny. Um, He's a kid with some majorly, you know, messed up teeth. He uh, ends up going to a mad scientist type of orthodontist orthodontist played by uh, Vincent Schiavelli, who I love. And his name is Dr. Yukonuba. He gives him a special retainer, which is supposed to repair his teeth after all this time. 
I guess he's been going there for five years and <laughs> nothing has worked to fix this kid's teeth. Um, so this new contraption that Dr. Uh, Yukonuba came up with somehow works as an antenna, allowing Steve to start hearing the thoughts of dogs like they were talking to him. And uh, it turns out that dogs are actually not man's best friend. So he goes to Marshall and Simon and they uh, decide to create a recording device which Marshall hooks up to the retainer to try to record the dog's thoughts and voices. So they go out and they try to uh, listen to some dogs, and they uh, trying to get reception. They start uh, hearing a, a chant of freedom. So they decide, okay, where is this coming from? And they find out that it's a bunch of dogs chanting freedom in the pound. Um, turns out they're being held by a... It was fairly cruel a uh, dog warden who basically threatens the dogs with the chamber. And this is where it gets pretty dark. The chamber either looks like a gas chamber or like a cremation chamber. <laughs> it's it's pretty dark, actually. Um, yes, yes. So as the Steve Marshall and Simon are in the pound, they realize that the dogs have taken care of <laughs> the dog warden somehow. I think we can all guess how. And they decide to let all the dogs out because they make an agreement with the dogs that if they let them out, then the dogs will let them go. At this point, they're pretty much trapped. Um, the dogs want Steve's retainer. You know, it's kind of scary having a bunch of growling dogs after you. So uh, Steve starts to freak out, and he runs. And we actually don't see what happens to Steve, but... It's kind of implied that the dogs get a hold of Steve, and um, we never see Steve again. So later on, when Marshall gets his own retainer, a dog named Fluffy comes up and uh, kind of looks at him like, uh, can you hear me my thoughts too? And Marshall reassures him that his retainer is just a normal retainer. It does not hear the thoughts of dogs. And at that point, the dog spits out Steve's retainer and... Uh, Marshall puts it in the Erie Museum of Horror. So that's the whole episode. Yeah. Yeah, that's um uh what what did you what did you think of this? Thank you, Amy. What did you think of this one? I wasn't a fan of this episode actually. Really tell oh, tell me uh, it, I don't think it was I don't think it was a really good episode. Um I didn't really like the idea. First of all, I'm an animal lover, so I'm like dogs sure. aren't that mean mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. manipulative. So I was like, uh, I don't know. I didn't like um, overall, I thought it was kind of a lame episode, mm-hmm. to be honest. All right, I think so. I mean, some I did. There was some things in it I liked. Some little like, you know, jokes or things on signs in the background. You know, that kind of thing. Doctor Yukonuba. That's obviously <laughs> kind of a, a dog food. <laughs> so, um, and I, I really liked Vincent Schiavelli in that. Mm-hmm. So he was like the highlight of the episode for me. <laughs> yeah, I um. I, I think I, I I'm kind of I, I I liked it more than you did, but I what I <clears throat> what I liked about it was that it's completely different from the first episode. It has a complete. Oh yeah. Me, it has a complete. And and since it's written by the creators, to me this is them saying, okay, it's not just this; it's also this. And i i like i like the, the the scene with Steve and Marshall and Simon where Steve is eating a sandwich and they're realizing his retainer is picking up dog talk 
because it's just yeah. a lot of stuff like um, Steve like hearing, oh, I want to eat that sandwich. Well, Simon, you're not going to get a bite of my sandwich. I didn't say anything about your stupid sandwich. Well, then shut up about it. And I just I just love the I just love the talk <laughs> between these dumb kids. I love that. And yeah. I love I love you know what? I love dogs, too. I I didn't. It's. It's interesting. I, I, the, the thing, the thing I felt at the end because obviously the the main the main bad. Uh, now, what kind of dog is Fluffy? Is that I want to say like Alaskan Wolfhound uh, he, or something? Is that correct? Or yeah, am I he's either crazy? a Husky or a Malamute. I would okay. think. Yeah, okay, and he's definitely. gorgeous, gorgeous dog. And then oh there's yeah, a, there's Absolutely. this one great dog that runs around chasing its tail in the street that they re- repeat over the closing credits. <laughs> that is so weird. But the the main dog is a French poodle who so, uh, speaks yes. with a French female accent. Ac- accident. Accent. Well, maybe that was a Freudian slip. Um, accent, which I, I <laughs> thought was funny. And in, in the end, I. I, I didn't I didn't love the episode, but there was enough stuff in it that I really liked that made me um, uh, appreciate that they were sort of putting the stamp on it. Like, okay, it's not just it, like I said, it's not just this; it's also this. And I, I in the end, mm-hmm. I like. Th- there's a scene where um, so they pull down the chamber. Fluffy pulls down the chamber, and all the dogs are chanting and yelling at the three kids. And the, the, the poodle says, who I would have thought was named Fluffy, but the poodle said, is, is, what is yeah. the poodle name? Um, I don't uh, know. I don't know either. Um, uh, the poodle uh, says, we will all be freed as soon as we can figure out the secret of the doorknob, which I thought was pretty funny. And so, so the guys <laughs> yeah. just run and they pull this doorknob and release all the dogs. And it's great because I... Which think, I thought was weird that they would have doorknobs in the pound. I thought that was a little <laughs> weird, too. I thought maybe that was an eerie thing, like a Mr. Dithers or whatever his name is thing. Like, yeah, um, I, I just view it as, you know, it's a kid's show. I should just let these things go. I'm like, well, why do they have doorknobs? I've worked in kennels. They don't have doorknobs. Yeah, I, I, I think <laughs> Dogs that, can actually figure out doorknobs. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I would think they would. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been... For the past six months, I've been intensely watching Petticoat Junction, and Petticoat Junction has the dog who became Benji on it, and and that dog oh. can do anything. So you don't like, yeah. Do- yeah. That dog can open doors. Yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> um, but I, I think the thing with it, it's funny. I, I watched the episode and I wasn't nearly as satisfied as I was with the first one. I was trying desperately to figure out why. I think part of it is the the tone is different. It's almost like an X Files thing where. If you watch the X-Files in its original run, you get episode that felt like one thing, then the next one would feel very different. Um, right. I, was tr- I was trying to think, um, around season seven, um, there is an episode, I think, called Arcadia, about a, um, I think it's about like a homeowners association, and someone is killing people. Oh, yeah. And there's like, and yep. so Mulder and Scully, yeah, pretend to be a married couple. And so Mulder like puts a basketball hoop on the lo- on the driveway just to, <laughs> to, to, and it's like, there's this, spoilers folks, I'm sorry, there's like this mud demon that the head of the, it's, it's, it's a hilarious concept that the homeowners association oh, guy yeah. calls out to kill anyone who, who could, and, and that's a very kind of strange, silly episode. Then I think the next one of the one before it is one called Alpha about this woman scientist who Mulder's been speaking with who may or may not be coming a giant, be turning into a giant like dog or wolf. And those to me mm-hmm. are like this one, sort of, Arcadia isn't as goofy as Foreverwear, but it's sort of like the, the same sort of thing where 
it's it's showing that we can take on different tones and do different things. Right. Yeah. Um, now I don't think this okay. is fu- I don't think this is fully successful because I think the stuff with Steve. <laughs> Who's such a nerd, and he's constantly berating yeah. Simon and Marshall for like, you guys are so lame. This is so, and, and yeah. clearly, like he's got lettuce hanging off his retainer. He's clearly the lame <laughs> one. Uh, but right, but I, and I, I think I what I what I appreciate is that when Joe Dante shot the final scene where they released the dogs and the dogs are about to sort of come, it's presented as like sort of a big like escape thing from a movie, and then it's almost presented as like. Um, not, not like a horde of zombies or something, but like you know, it's not like if you've seen a like killer dog movie, like Dogs or The Pack or like Cujo. These dogs ain't those mm-hmm. dogs. These dogs are littler, they're nah. cuter, <laughs> and there's something about them. I I was actually thinking, <clears throat> just because Christmas was a little while ago, and one of my favorite sitcoms is a British one called Father Ted. I don't know if you've seen that one, Amy. Have you ever seen that? No, I've heard of it. But I, I haven't seen it. I recommend it highly because it's friggin' hilarious. And and this isn't really a spoiler per se, but in the Christmas episode, um, the three main priests who are on an island in the middle of nowhere in Ireland go to the mainland, probably um, Dublin or something, and they go to a mall and they're doing their Christmas shopping. And two of the priests aren't paying attention and wander up in the center of the women's lingerie section. And it's like all these super like sexy erotically posed mannequins with like little bras and panties on and everything. And like, oh my god, we gotta get out of here! If anyone finds two priests <laughs> standing in here, we're gonna be in trouble. And the thing is, as they're trying to get out, they come across uh, five more priests who got lost in the section too. They were all out shopping on the same day, and so, so suddenly there are like six or seven priests who are like, we gotta get out of here. And so. It's shot as if it were like rescuing like POWs from Vietnam or something like that. <laughs> and so like the final sequences are like they're able to divert all these women away from the nearest cash register. Father Ted, the main guy, kicks open an exit door that goes out into an alley. And when the door flies open, there's like wind blowing in and you see flashing blue lights. And he's doing that thing where like they're diving out of a plane or something. Where it's, come on! And they go one by one. And to me, that's what... And it's it's completely ridiculous, and that's kind of what the ending with the dogs felt like, because it's these three kids. <laughs> okay. And yeah, the dogs, if they rush them all, yeah, they could probably get them, but they're also cute, you know. And it's sort of yeah, like yeah, they are, and, and they're super happy. <laughs> yes, and they're super happy, and they're and 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 it's just because you can hear the voices, and I think that's part of the thing is like you see them. And they look like they're just super sweet and they're going to jump on you. But there's there's that yeah. moment where the Fluffy jumps on Simon and it looks so sweet. But si- uh, Fluffy is saying, I'm going to eat you. It's like, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. It's I, All I thought of was Lucio Fulci's zombie. We are going to eat you right there. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> you know from the poster of Fulci's zombie that that guy is going to friggin' eat you. But but <laughs> when Fluffy jumps on you, it's different. It's, it's a funny episode because um I didn't love it. But I, like I said, I appreciated the tone, and I loved how just Steve and Vincent Chiavelli there, just, and Steve with his that when 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 his mouth is wide open and he has those huge like I don't know like walrus teeth or something I don't know what the hell they are those yeah. huge and it's just I yeah I I yeah I I um I, I I guess I'll say this we're we're in early days of the show. So if they can, if they're gonna hit two tones, 
or, or even more than that, hopefully, um, if they can yeah. get one of them spot on the first time, the other one needs work. Because I remember Arcadia being a lot of fun. I haven't watched it in a few years, but I remember Alpha no, being. A, <laughs> I, I remember Alpha being a bit lacking, but I'll have to watch mm-hmm. them again to see if I'm right. So if they're gonna, if you're gonna hit multiple tones, I'm good if one's slightly off. If you're gonna explore it some more, so so that's my thoughts on this, which maybe was was too details but you know sometimes that happens <laughs> folks it's, an, it's a, we're talking about a new show here so what well, a new old show so what are some other things that you you liked about it or you or, or bugged you well i there was a funny sign in the pound that said no barking like the dogs could read which i guess they could <laughs> they, read because they, they were bark. reading the coin toss as yeah, you know yes. when they were testing yes. steve at the beginning they put a bag on his head and flipped the coin in front of the dog to see if he could read his mind. So dogs can obviously tell the difference between coins, and they could read signs that said no barking. <laughs> but I thought that was pretty funny. That was, and, and, um, and uh, yeah, and don't they don't they question like why aren't the dogs barking? Now they read the sign. Yeah, I guess I don't. Yep. Yeah. And I do like. But when, I did um, think that was awful oh, dark. The uh, the implication that they would go into the chamber and they showed this like thing that yeah, looked that's... pretty horrible. I was like, oh man, this is yeah. dark. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I guess because I'm an animal lover, so I'm yes. like, oh my god, the dogs are mean, and this guy's yeah. threatening them. No wonder, no wonder they're mean. Yes. You know, you know, the one thing I was hoping would happen was I was really hoping that when Marshall saw the chamber, he would have pulled it down. That that's yeah. what I that's what I would have liked to see because Fluffy pulls it down. Yeah. But I I I hope it's sort of just him being a little tentative because the, because the way this story is presented is it begins after it's over when Marshall's going to get a retainer and he's scared to get it because of the dogs. And there's a very funny moment where he's looking out the front window and his narration is like, I'm afraid of the dogs. And his sister walks up and you (laughs) see that fluffy poodle. And she's like, what? Because actually in the, in the opening credits, you see Elvis, you see Bigfoot picking through his garage. And then you see a dog with a gun in its mouth, which I thought was, (laughs) was a hilarious image. I'd love to, I don't, you know, I don't, that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on in this episode, whether or not it's, it's all, um, it's all, I think, I think a lot of it is very good. Um, uh, I mean, I didn't hate the episode, I just, mm-hmm. it wasn't as good as the first episode, yeah, so, yeah, I, 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 you know, I think, I, I, we're in agreement there, and the more I, you talk about it, the more I see that there were, you know, there's more to like in this episode. If I get over the fact that the dogs are jerks, and yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I think the, I think the thing to me is if we look at it sort of like um, a lot of the shows we talked about on here and a lot of shows in general, the first episode is them sort of, if it's the pilot, it's the creators get, trying to give it their all. Whereas the second episode mm-hmm. is them trying to go, okay, we can't give it our all every episode because we won't have anything to get. Like, get smart. <laughs> like, it's, right. I always point to get smart. The first episode of Get Smart, written by Mel Brooks and Buck Henry, and it has every spy gag you could think of in 1965. <laughs> then the next episode, Diplomat's Daughter, reels so far back that it's almost a different show because they're almost like, okay, we can't do that every episode because we'll run out of things after eight episodes. So they're able to reel it back, (laughs) and they can't fully recover until about halfway into the season. Like, the next ten episodes, they're all like, okay, these are all right, but they're not good as the first one. But by the end of the first season, you're like, okay, they're getting it now. So so I don't mind that the second episode is a little... 
not as grand as the first because it's sort of like, oh, we got the show. Oh, we have to do a second episode. Okay, you know, oh, let's try this. So, right. Um, yeah. I like the fact that in the first episode, Marshall wears a New York Giants sweatshirt the whole time. And then right. in this one, he's still wearing it. His dad points out, you haven't taken that off in exactly. months. Exactly. Which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Which is awesome. Um, <laughs> which one, made one me of... wonder, when is it getting washed? Is he washing it daily, once a week? How often yes. are you washing that? I hope, I mean, God, if it's, what, 13? <laughs> oh, my God. It might yeah. be some time between washings. I don't know. I worry. Um, Though I he's love... a pretty low-key 13-year-old. He, he seems is. pretty, um, yeah. he's a mellow kid. Yeah, um, I'd love to know what music he listens to. Yeah, we don't know what music he listens to. I'd like to know because I'm thinking when I was 13. Oh, no, when I was 13, I was just listening to like Cheech and Chong and Monty Python. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't until I was 14 that I started listening to music uh, properly. I, you know, I, I did listen to some music, obviously. I listened to the radio and Elvis and the Beatles and, and the Rolling Stones, things like that. But uh, those are parents' albums or all right tracks, actually. But right. uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Yeah, um, uh, I do love that as they're sitting there and this this is nice. I think this is maybe this is another Joe Dante thing is that as we're watching Steve eating this sandwich and it's super gross and he's just he's <laughs> just annoying and you're picking up yep. the dog stuff as that's happening. You're getting um, and I was reminded, actually, um, this scene with the three of them talking by a tree. I thought of a few scenes in Kenny and Company, one of my favorite films, where, like, the three main character kids are talking together. Um, and Simon rushes up, and he's got a bunch of books from the library, which are all, like... And I, all I could think of was, like, um, uh, uh, you know, um, Simon's last name is Holmes. And Marshall reminds me kind of of a Mulder here, the way they're kind of putting, like, they're, they're looking at, like, look at the Bermuda Triangle, and you see the shape of the Bermuda Triangle. Look at Erie, Indiana. Erie, yep. Indiana is the same triangle shape. And I just I just love that, that as we're sitting there going, what the heck is going on with this chubby kid, his retainer, all this lettuce in his retainer, <laughs> and these dogs, they're actually, like, like marking in some mythology about the the, the right. space itself which i appreciated i love the fact that um marshall says we might with this we might end up on unsolved mysteries <laughs> i used to love unsolved mysteries i don't know about you amy but oh uh, my god yes oh absolutely what do, do you have any uh, i i i have one that always sticks out in my mind when i think of unsolved mysteries do you have any that you th off the top no, of I don't. I just know I used to love watching it. <laughs> oh my gosh, I have I, I watched have the, it so much as a... uh, I have the. There's one with this woman who kept reporting over and over again that someone was threatening her. Someone was like sending her letters. I think they were calling her, and she kept reporting them to the police again and again. One time, like a, an officer came to her house, and she had been like stabbed through the hand or something like that, and it was crazy. <laughs> and it, it was just nuts. And, but then, it, and, and then they found her in the end, like tied up and dead, like in the forest. But when they actually began to piece together all the all the evidence, it actually looked like she had all done this to herself. I forget, her, I forget her name, but you can probably find it if you if you do like an unsolved mysteries wiki thing. But it was just like you watching. Wow. Oh my god, this poor woman! And then in the end, it's yeah. like they 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 piece this together that like 
oh my gosh, well, this she could have stabbed herself, and these things were like this. And it's like, oh my God. It's like, peep, Amy, people are nuts. People, people yeah. are crazy. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's what I that get, sounds like. And that's <laughs> that, ladies and gentlemen, is why Amy the Conqueror doesn't like this episode, because people are nuts, and you want to trust in your dogs and your cats. And you don't want right. to think that they... <laughs> are going to eat you when they jump. Although all I can think of there is a Queequeg from the X-Files again in Clyde Bruckman. Oh, yeah. When she yep. eats. Yep. Yeah, when Queequeg eats. Uh, but then Queequeg gets eaten by an alligator. Spoiler, uh, later yeah. in the season. So, <laughs> in a really you know. wonderful episode, yeah. So. <laughs> um, let's see, what, what else do you have? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a note scan here. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think that's about on. it. Okay. I, 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 I didn't know there, there's a there's a scene where um, they're they're talking uh, Simon and and Marshall are talking and there's a TV in the background which looks like it's a TV from like the the 60s or something and they're showing us a black and white film or TV episode where a woman is walking and like a dog leaps onto honor not on top of her but oh on I didn't her. even see that and and the dog has her purse and she's like thank you so much and I at first I thought that <laughs> might be Lassie. But it's not Lassie. I don't know who the dog is. Um, maybe it's Rin Tin Tin. Huh. I'm not terribly familiar with Rin Tin Tin's filmography. Um, but but I, I like the fact that she may have been, you know, maybe that, you know, maybe that purse was filled with bits of her children or something like that to um, intimidate her. I don't know. <laughs> but it's a, it's it's funny. It's an episode that, as I'm talking about it to you, I kind of like it a bit more than I remember. <laughs> when I was watching it. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're making me like it a bit more. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think, I think, I think Joe Dante's is a good job and I like the concept behind it, but something in it <clears throat> was lacking. I don't know if it's, I, I hesitate to say it for all my, my, my dog friends out there, but there's something about this crazy, like 60 year old woman keeping her kids in forever wear and, and stuff like that, that, that builds, Whereas going into this dog pound and freeing some dogs, knowing that they're not going to, the kids aren't going to get hurt. That uh, although losing Steve is crazy, that that doesn't build quite yeah. as much. It's it's almost like Forever Wear starts off with like we have to do, introduce everything, and then it gets weird as it goes. Whereas this episode, kind of like from the beginning, is like okay, dog with a gun in his mouth, you can hear a dog talking. What's happening? And then it 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 doesn't. I don't know if it builds as high as it should. Maybe I don't. I, I don't know. I, I yeah, like I said, I, I don't. I don't dislike it, uh, and I appreciate the tone, but I didn't enjoy it as much as the first one. And right. Yeah. I'm gonna scan my notes one more time. Old man Dithers. Oh, I do like when they go into the. I don't know where this was shot. We gotta look. I gotta. I gotta do more freaking background on it. I have. You know, there. <laughs> there are people. Uh, there's a great guy named Mike. Who, who comments on the Adventure Super Train site, who always has all the background that I never have. Um, so thank oh, you, Mike. Well, that's helpful. Thank you, Mike. I, I hope you're enjoying this. I don't think he's a 90s TV show guy, but I hope that um, uh, I don't want to say this is like Kolchak the Night Stalker or something like that, but think of it as something like that. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's in that right. realm. You know, because I think every every generation or every age group in each generation has to have a show or something that, where you tackle evil stuff and monsters. And, you know, I, I don't know that 
this is going to be that one specifically because it's talking a talking dog brigade who you would never it's it's funny if the retainer had never been put in and this story had happened it would have been about three kids freeing some dogs who were possibly about to be killed and then the dogs kind of look at them funny but then leave so yeah. <laughs> so it, yeah without the talking dog part it becomes a, a whole different thing but uh, final <clears throat> scan the mystery of the doorknob Da, 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 fluffy Steve's retainer. Yeah, okay. All right, yeah, I think that's about all I have for this one. <clears throat> I'm interested to see what the next one will bring us. So, um, so yes, me too. Uh, so, um, Amy the Conqueror, online, if I were me, where could I find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Amy underscore the underscore Conqueror. All right, awesome. And um, I guess, um, boy, that Dan, he looks delicious. I think what I would like to end the episode with, I think I'm going to eat him up, I'm going to put him on a little kibble, <laughs> and it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> what we're going to do now is going to, no! Precinct, Episode 2, Mr. Cool, aired April 18th, 1986, directed by Michael Lange, written by Robert Gothals, G-O-E-T-H-A-L-S. This episode is about a gangster named Mumbo Bob and a second-in-command named Spanish Johnny. Spanish Johnny rode in out of Harlem late last night. I'm not going to sing uh, all of Incident on 57th Street to you, although I might. Wouldn't that be fun if I sang the entirety of that song? That's like an eight-minute-long song. I'm not going to sing that to you right now. But it, Spanish Johnny's second in his command and has uh, kind of his eye on Mumbo Bob's um, gal. Now, uh, the king is playing at a bar that Mumbo Bob and Spanish Johnny and the lady are at. Uh, let's see, Night Train is there, and Mel is there, and uh, Price is there that's his name right sorry yes um and they're there and they're watching the king play we want to play house with you mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they see mumbo bob and are thinking boy i'd like to bring him in well spanish johnny and mumbo bob get into a bit of a plastic hassle and they end up having a shootout and things go crazy and mumbo bob is kind of uh he's been having a disquieting sensation about uh spanish johnny and kind of uh, wants Spanish Johnny. He's got two two main goons who aren't Spanish Johnny. He wants Spanish Johnny killed. Spanish Johnny isn't killed. He ends up with the police saying he'll turn over all the information he can on, on, on Bob as long as he gets to stay and hang out with Mel, who he calls a knockout-looking tuna. There you go. He stays with Mel. 
Mel doesn't particularly like him. The thing with Spanish Johnny is every day he needs a large double cheese extra pepperoni pizza with one anchovy. So the gang goes out to get it for him. The goons try to stop him. They end up destroying the pizza and Price brings Spanish Johnny chicken. And Spanish Johnny, due to Mel, ends up choking to death on a chicken leg. Uh-oh. The police chief and the DA show up. They want to talk to Johnny. He's going to turn evidence. We're going to get Mumble Bob taken care of. Everything is going to be awesome. But Spanish Johnny is dead. So the gang comes up with the concept of having Mumble Bob shoot Spanish Johnny. How is this going to work? Well, they keep Spanish Johnny on ice and Mel romances Bob but then kind of says at the last moment, I've decided to go back to my fiance. I'm marrying him tomorrow to get Bob to come out and shoot Johnny. So they can say, oh, Johnny's been shot. He can't be a witness anymore. And oh, if they can catch, you know, Bob, that would be great too. And it's hilarious and it's crazy and all kinds of nutty. Well, it's certainly got some nutty moments in it. This has a moment that I remember very clearly from originally watching this back in April of 1986. Oh boy. That moment is during the a wacky car chase in sort of the alleys of LA, uh, which, which I'll, I'll, I'll mention a strange address thing in a moment, but uh, the pizza they're bringing back for Spanish Johnny falls out of the car. They run it over and you see a close-up of the pizza with a big tire tract on the middle and a caption appears saying 80% of all accidents to pizzas happen within 10 miles from a pizzeria. And I remember that very clearly from when I was April 18th. I was 12 when this aired in uh, seventh grade. Wow, going to Christ the King in Irondequoit, New York. Wow, I remember that so clearly. This was on, was this on Friday night, I think? I want to say I feel like Friday night was right. I may have been taping it, I may not have. I remember that moment very clearly, and I remember lots of Mel because she looks fantastic, whether she's in the aerobic suit or her miniskirt wedding dress or her assorted uh, gowns and things when she's wooing Mumbo Bob. Um, but I don't remember much else about this. Possibly there could be reasons behind that. It's got it's got wacky to it the episode, but it again it's it's like yeah if I guess if Police Academy movies settled down and we've talked about you know like like six having a plot through it, seven having a plot through it, and five more or less having a plot through it. But at this time, Police Academy movies didn't settle down. As I I know I've said this before, but it just. I don't, I don't know that I fully would have watched the show if it were the Police Academy show. I would have found it a little disappointing. It's it's not terribly wacky. I mean, there are some moments. The, that pizza moment is one, and there are, there are a few others. I mean, just the, the premise of, you know, the, the dead guy that they're trying to keep alive. And when he's at the wedding, they put him on roller skates so that they can always sort of guide him along. You know, and the chief, Adam West, they're not realizing. Um, or Sergeant, I forget I forget what Adam West's uh, character is. I think he is Captain. He's a Captain Rick Wright. He, you know, him not realizing that this guy is dead. Eh, you know, that's all fun. The size of um, Mumble Bob's gun, the barrel on the gun, which is like 10 times the size of a barrel on a regular like gun. There, there are moments to enjoy in this. Um, I, I, am, I am slightly confused, I guess, as to why Haggerty is in this so little. Good old uh, Yana Nirvana. Uh, she, she's in this only briefly, in, 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 I think only briefly, is one scene at the, at, the, at, the, at, the, um, at the wedding ceremony, which I found a little strange. But anyway, this episode, Mr. Cool, Art Matrano's in it. He plays Mumble Bob. This was in between Police Academies 2 and 3. 
or actually no i take that back this was like i said last time i'm sorry this was police academy 2 had come out when the movie aired at this point police academy 3 had come out we see two movies full of mauser and mauser is hilarious especially in tandem with proctor i'd love to do the mauser minute by minute where i go through every minute of police academy 2 and 3 maybe i'll do the police academy movies like that 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 would be fun i think but here he's very much uh, you know i am experiencing a disquieting sensation as i'm sitting here watching this happen spanish johnny have you taken care of him and it's not particularly funny um and his goons are particularly funny and and spanish johnny isn't really around long enough to be funny i did think about spanish johnny that's weird is he causes all this trouble because knowing full well that his boss is very jealous he goes and dances and smooches on the boss's gal and the two goons tell him don't do that and he's like you know whatever and he goes and does it and then gets surprised when mumble bob goes crazy i think it's like mumble bob Vol- volcanus or something like that. i forget what his name is but it's like volcano something Volcan- um but it's 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 a weird kind of setup because i guess it could be comedic that this guy is so enamored of himself and this gal that he doesn't see that, but it doesn't seem particularly comedic to me. It just seems kind of a, I don't want to say dumb plot point, but not the smartest of ways. That's how you kickstart the episode. Why am I Why am I going to turn evidence on Mumbo Bob when they've tried to bust him before and failed? Um, because I fell in love with this gal who I really shouldn't be going near, began to smooch around with her. He got mad and tried to kill me and it went crazy from there. Eh, yeah, okay, maybe Spanish Johnny isn't the uh, the brightest fork in the drawer. Having said that, I just had a little sip of coffee. Having said that, let me just look at my notes and see, um, check out some other stuff going on with this. Dancing with Mel, want to play house with you. King shows up twice. He does that, and at the wedding, he does Bebopalula. And uh, Alphabet does say stuff. He says Yabba Dabba Doo at one point. I think he mentions Top Dogs, or he might mention Top Cat. I forget, but he um, he doesn't do too much. Uh, Butch and Sundance do more in this episode. They have more to do. Uh, they go with Raid to... Okay, I, I did like this scene. I, I don't know if it was laugh out loud funny, but I did like this scene quite a bit where they go to the coroner's to pick up Spanish Johnny's body. And when they pull the... You know, when Raid looks under the sheet, he finds instead of an Italian guy, a Chinese gentleman. And they realize that they've sent the body to the medical students and they're going to dissect him. And so they have to get the body back from him. But Raid stops to like eat all the food off of the medical student's plate and they got to get the body. You're four payments behind on this stiff. And uh, there's some good stuff. You know, there's some jokes about, you know, he's, you know, my fiance's really cold. Mel says that to Mumbo Bob. And then in the corner of the screen, almost like... Um, uh, when they would have like people doing sign language suddenly appear at the bottom of the screen, you suddenly see like um, Spanish Johnny like sitting in ice. There are some good moments in it, but it's I, I think I think the thing where it kind of falls down is that it's not particularly funny. There are funny moments uh, in it, but it's not sort of consistently funny throughout. And the tricky thing is that the the first episode the pre gorilla gram and the, the tv pilot were manic the tv the, the the tv movie sorry was too manic 
for my taste. Well, I don't know if you could be too manic. I think you could be too manic and end up not being funny, just being manic. Whereas I think the Gorilla Graham did a better job of it. I, I, I quite enjoyed bits of the Gorilla Graham very much. And But this one is, I don't know if it's, it's Michael Lang trying to sort of like, all right, we don't need to be that manic. I want, it, it, it almost is like, um, and I, I've probably said this again, forgive me for repeating myself, but there's a you know, a realm that we're in here, but it's like the second episode of Police Squad, uh, which I say that, that this show is occasionally resembles, um, only occasionally though, um, but it's like the second episode of Police Squad directed by Joe Dante, and I, I've said this before, forgive me, but the first episode is manic and crazy and hilarious from beginning to end, and there's a scene in the beginning where something very important is happening on the screen with involving guns, uh, but... In um, to the to our oral right, there's a very funny bunch of gags going on, and so you get distracted away from what's happening in front of you by listening for the gag. You're used to it from Airplane, and if you've seen it, see it later, you're used to it from their other movies. This uh, Joe Dante's episode, the second one, the boxing episode, has barely any jokes as it sets everything up. And it very specifically saying, okay, we can be madcap and crazy, but we need to set the world first so everyone knows where everything is in relation and go from there. I'm wondering if Michael Lang sort of did the same thing where he was like, okay, we don't have to be that madcap. We can set it up. We can let people know what's going on. We can clue them to in as to, uh, who these characters are, who these people are. Although we still don't really know any of the you know characters in the real in the precinct themselves. I guess I guess we probably know Mel the best at this point, but it's far less madcap this episode than the previous one in the TV movie, which actually made it kind of dull for me at times. There were moments when, you know, there was Spanish Johnny and then he's dead and then she's wooing Mumbo Bob and those scenes aren't particularly funny. It's just her kind of being a little mysterious and Mumbo Bob being like, who is this gorgeous woman? Oh my gosh, baby. And those scenes aren't particularly funny. And you, you, I almost wish that I liked. I like their concept that we get Mumble Bob to shoot Spanish Johnny, but if they're not particularly funny scenes, and they kind of go on for a bit and slow everything down. Mel looks fantastic, and it, you always hope Art Metrano is going to come up with a big funny, but he doesn't really here. And and so the pacing is crazy, and then you sort of get to the point where you're getting near the wedding, but there's a scene where Mel dances or pretends to dance with Spanish Johnny, so so Mumble Bob can see who it is. Oh my gosh, Spanish Johnny, that guy again. And so it's it's kind of like after a time you know exactly where it's going, and you'd hope or at least I hope it would get there faster or have more wackiness in there or maybe have, you know, after, you know, spoiler there, Mumble Bob shoots Spanish Johnny. Now he's already dead, but they catch him relatively quickly and then the episode wraps up. Maybe a madcap chase. Maybe that was time for a crazy end of Police Academy style chase. I mean, what what part three ends with? Part three is the... The jet skis, I think, and with something, and and with something, a madcap chase. Do it, but it just sort of goes on and on and and ends, and it's not terribly funny. And at times, I even wondered, like, is this even meant to be funny? I mean, the yeah, the concept obviously is ridiculous um, and farcical, but but it's there were just long stretches, especially like I said with Mel and Mumbo Bob, where nothing really funny was happening. And I kind of sitting there thinking, okay, I'm waiting for the next big bit of comedy to occur. Yeah. Sometimes there's some stuff and sometimes there isn't. But 
it's really sort of, I don't want to call it schizophrenic. I mean, we're only on the second episode of the show. So obviously, like I said, Gorilla Graham is calming it down a bit and trying to get you into the characters a bit more than the TV movie, which is just sort of disjointed, wonderful and strange when it was wonderful. Uh, this one is just is trying a different tactic, a little more less crazy a little less wacky although the, the premise is wacky but it's 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 funny like i say the premise of it with spanish dead spanish johnny mumbo bob gonna shoot him and it sounds like it should be the craziest thing but it's actually treated apart from a few moments like with the dancing with him and um the roller skates and and like the like um captain right there trying to talk to him uh, it's just, it's kind of a straightforward kind of thing. There's nothing terribly crazy about it. That's why I really like the scene with the medical examiner and, and Raid and, and Butch and, um, and Sundance because it, uh, that's, it's funny. It, it's, it's kind of a, fu- it's a funny scene. It's not kind of a funny scene. There's some good laughs in that scene. And it's too bad that they don't have Ray do more stuff because he's the one kind of pulling his weight, as it were, with the funny. Mel's gorgeous and fun to watch, and she has some great asides. Like, if I if I knew you were going to take advantage of my sex like this, I would have just stuck with the nose job. Good man, that woman. Uh, she doesn't say that. Uh, but, yeah, as far as the episode goes, uh, I, of of the, the, the three things that we've watched so far, this is my least favorite. The Last Precinct TV movie has its charms. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe it's it's a little too overlong for what it tries to do, and it's a little too manic. The Gorilla Gram I quite enjoyed. This one I found was a little dull. The, you know, once you've got the premise, there's not much to it, really. And, and uh, you know, the pizza gag and the medical examiner bits were my favorite bits in the in in here comedy wise as a kid i think i may have been disappointed by this too i thought it would be more madcap i thought it would be wackier i thought art matrano would be funnier it's okay i mean it's a thoroughly average episode of mid 80s cop show type thing just with some comedy in it so i guess i guess i'll, I'll stop talking about it there but let, let me just say there was one more thing um where's my pizza Oh, it's between La Brea and Melrose on 6th. La Brea, Melrose, and 6th are all streets in Los Angeles. Uh, La, La Brea is... is uh, oh, La Brea and Melrose are major streets. 6th, not really. 3rd, uh, I would say, is a major street. Uh, obviously, especially when you hit down like Santa Monica. 6th Street is uh, is the next street down if you're, if you're going south into Los Angeles. The next street is Wilshire, which is a big street. But 6th isn't a particularly big street. Uh, But the interesting thing, of course, is that La Brea goes north and south. Melrose is east to west. 6th is east to west, or west to east, east, you know. So in between La Brea and Melrose on 6th doesn't make any sense at all. And I'm wondering if they, you know, maybe they didn't want people to we don't when last last precinct goes through the roof and goes crazy we don't want people going to the exact location so don't say uh i don't don't know like in between fifth and sixth on la brea that that might make sense they're in alleys of the whole time you know or in between melrose and beverly on highland that would make sense but between la brea and melrose on sixth geographically makes no sense yabba dabba do you knockout looking tuna I think uh, that is all I had. He's a little stiff, long gun. Oh, there, there is right at the end of the pizza scene, the 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 goons shoot the pizza. It already has a huge tire track through it, and they shoot it. Raid is in a dumpster, and he rises up out of the dumpster, and he says, "Go ahead, 
make your move. Which seemed a little lame to me. I love Ray, though. Don't get me wrong. So that's episode two of The Last Precinct. Mr. Cool. My copy actually taped off of TV uh, is Mrs. the Mr. Cool title. So I actually had to go look it up to find out what the title is. Hooray! The first credit I see there is guest starring Art Matrano, which raised my hopes so high. So that is the end of Last Precinct episode two. And now, let's go down to New Orleans. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Starring Richard Long. In New Orleans. Andrew Duggan. This is the blues. With Arlene Howell and Van Williams. Produced by Warner Brothers. Bourbon Street Beat, episode 19, The 10% Blues, originally aired February 8th, 1960, directed by William J. Hull Jr., teleplay by Stephen Lord, story by Hugh Benson and Dick Nelson. This one begins with the Baron and his band at the Absinthe House finishing a set. The Baron heads out, uh, just out walking. I, 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 You know, the set's over, maybe he's heading home, maybe he's just getting some fresh air, when all of a sudden... A bunch of jerks uh, pull up and beat him, basically in an alley. They 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 pull up, these these four people pull up in this swank car. There's this um, posh-looking couple in the back, a lady with kind of a smile on her face as he's getting beaten, and a guy. And they beat up the Baron, and and you learn later on that the Baron was. Um, an agency came up to him someone from all-star booking office kind of a goon type guy came up to him and said we want you to sign with all-star booking baron said i already have an agent so this was apparently someone from that agency beating him up and so cal and rex begin to investigate it and they check out uh the all-star booking um agency office there's a guy there named marty gibson also one of the goons who beat the baron is there and we learn that it's sort of a strong-arm tactic. These people have just arrived in, possibly from like Kansas City, and they're basically going to all the clubs and telling everyone in these clubs, musicians, dancers, comedians, entertainers, you sign with us or else. And they basically beat them if they don't sign with them. So our gang, with the help of Lusty, begin to investigate what's going on. Hooray, Lusty's back. And they go to the club Lusty is at, and there's a comedian there named Vinny King who recently signed with All-Star Booking. But his girlfriend hasn't. And Vinny is kind of kind of um, iffy about why he exactly signed with them. And Rex and Cal are, like I said, investigating, and they've got, they've got Lusty with them. And uh, the goons beat up uh, pretty badly Vinny's girlfriend uh, which Vinny does not take too happy to and then we see this this posh couple kind of lurking in the background talking about how yeah they they are in charge of all-star booking Marty is sort of a front for them and so Cal and Rex have to find out who these people are who run all-star booking and stop them from hurting any more of their friends any of these people hurting Lusty and yeah, you got to do it. You got to save the day. You got to stop these crazy agents from doing this kind of garbage. It's 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 an interesting episode. Mitchell and I are going to dive right into it after this. Time for the ten percent blues episode nineteen. Everybody, nineteen a Bourbon Street beat, and I am here with the only guy 
that I will go to Shackleton's with on a Saturday night. <laughs> it's Mitchell Hadley. How are you, Mitchell? That's a little callback, a little continuity for you folks there. Mitchell, how are you? I'm well. How are you, Dan? Doing good. I, I, yeah. I, I'm ready to uh, talk the 10% blues. If yes. you would like to give me your thoughts on it, and then I will give you mine, and then we will just, just ramble on for a bit. It'll be fun. <laughs> folks love it. Please. Well, there is nothing. There is nothing blue about this episode. This is terrific <laughs> from beginning to end, <laughs> and um, yeah, I don't don't know where even to start. Uh, except I'll start at the uh, at the beginning. It has some great music going on at the beginning. Then there's some really nasty nasty turn of events when uh, when the Baron gets roughed up in a protection racket and. You can, you know, you know that this is not going to end well, that this is not a smart thing for anybody to do, to rough up the Baron, considering his friends, and specifically Rex. And this episode introduces us to a Rex we have not seen before. Uh, He is uh, tough. I, 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 I mean, he is, he is a tough guy. Anyway, you know, or he wouldn't be a successful detective. But the only other time that I've seen him anywhere near this was in the episode where his brother-in-law was killed. But in this one, he's not only tough talking, he's tough acting. There's a scene where he holds a gun to someone's forehead. Yes. Yeah. Over and, and over again. Like, yes. Yes. And you know he's not afraid to use it. He will use it if he has to. And and he is uh, uh, beating the crap out of people, and he's coming in as the classic tough guy detective. This is straight out of, if if in the last episode we had a joke about him being part of what the crippled detectives club, this is straight out of the tough guy, two-fisted detective club, yes. and it is great. I, I I agree. I I it it start yeah it start like you said it starts off with I'm I'm gonna go over the sort of the same ground <laughs> you went over but uh, but that's the way to go uh, because it starts off with a great jazz number playing it's got one of those jazz drummers that I love who like when he's his he's playing just everything's in in time and it's fa- he's just soloing and it's fantastic but it looks like at any moment his arms could fly off and go around the room <laughs> i just absolutely love it. i just i just love watching the, the the jazz drummers like that but yeah there is the moment like the moment you see baron the baron step out of uh the the the, the place by himself it's it's like oh this isn't going to go well and yeah. for, for a brief second i thought they were going to shoot him or something. I thought it was going to be worse than that. I mm-hmm. thought. I thought. Would they, I thought? Would they have done this to uh, like a main supporting character like this in 1960? Probably not. But but for a brief second, I thought that. I thought. Oh my! And just as there's a moment later on, because um, you know, one of our favorites reappears. Um, yes. Ms. Well. Ms. Weathers reappears. <laughs> there's a moment. There's a moment later on with Lusty where these these jerks. I. I I, I think I'm underselling it a little bit when I call them jerks. Um, but the, these these clowns from the um, that's even worse. Uh, these clowns from this talent agency are beating the crap out of everyone to make them clients. And there's a moment where like one of Lusty's friends has gotten like severely beaten, and she's on the phone with Rex and Cal, and she's like, "Okay, well I'll come over" or something like that. And she's like standing alone in like an alcove talking on the phone. And for a second, I thought. Like someone was going to come up behind her and, mm-hmm. and attack her, and now now you learn later on that they 
the having attacked the first gal, they said the rest of them will. We don't need to go back there because the rest of them will kowtow now that we've done this, and that that kind of clears that up a bit. But there is just a moment right there where I was like, in the same way that I was worried the Baron they were going to shoot him, I thought Lusty was going to get like hit hard, and and yeah. it almost it almost seems a little, little um, lax of of Rex and Cal to let her. Be not that uh, not that Lusty can't handle herself, but these are goons. These are big goons. Well, and particularly since there is a moment where um, Cal is specifically introduced to someone as Lusty's boyfriend, mm-hmm. and that, that that's the first time that it uh, that that anybody has made that explicit a comment, uh, and it comes as no particular surprise to us, except again, it carries through the idea that we raised a couple of episodes ago that Lusty is in this series even when she's not in it. She's yes. part of their universe. Yes. And, but um, but you're you're right, and um, it seeing as how both Cal and Rex are in this episode a good deal, it makes you wonder if something had happened to Lusty, it, you would have had Cal more or less in the same state of mind as uh, Rex is. That could have been very interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's and it was almost at that point after they attack that the one the the other dancer and really sort of disfigure her. At that moment, I was like, okay, we got it. Now the good guys have to start winning at this point. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, unless we're going to spiral into some strange horror film area, now is the time for the good guys to begin, begin to turn yep. the tables. And, um, and they're, they're, I, I, um, uh, I've actually had the scene on right now where Rex g- first goes to meet the, the talent agent guy, not the scene with the gun, but the scene where he basically slaps the yes. crap out of the guy. And you could uh-huh. hear like the guy like whimpering, as he's, he's slapping him. I mean, he's not... Uh, and then he beats the crap out of that one goon, and he's just karate <laughs> chopping him in the neck, and it's just like, ugh. Yeah, don't... It's like, don't do not do it. That, and that's one of the, the joys of the episode, is it has the feeling like, no, 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 you 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 wandered... Uh, you know, this is this is where the detective agency is. People, people come in here, and they talk to us, and we go to them. If you come into here, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. And, and, and so there... there yeah, there, there is... Yeah, I I really like this episode, and there is something I like. I don't know, is this the way like talent agencies and things did stuff back in the fifties or sixties? Well, I I think I'll fall back on one of the comments that I've made in the past is that you see the the because this is this is a protection racket, and this is the kind of thing that you would see in the Untouchables, and you would see it in Perry Mason and different shows of the era. Now I don't know if talent agencies specifically would have done anything like that. Uh, I, I'm more used to seeing them involved in payola and that kind of thing. But it is a premise that the TV audience would have easily understood that what we're dealing with here are a bunch of gangsters. And and so I think that um, that it becomes plausible in the sense that people are used to the premise, whether it actually happens in the the talent business or not. People get what they're talking about, and it's yeah. it's always an effective story. I think. Oh, oh I th- I mean, I was I was I completely bought into yep. it. I I just yeah. um, I I wondered if this was because there's a there's a I don't know if this became a TV episode of Dragnet, but there was a, a radio episode of Dragnet that's something along the lines of um you know today we look into the very 
serious problem of TV repairmen who rip people off. I'm like, this is this is an episode, and it, it, I guess it was a serious problem when yes. TVs when TVs first started coming out. You had all these people who would be like, they they take your TV for weeks, and then they charge you incredible amounts of money to do nothing to the TV. And Friday and whoever I, I don't know if it's Romero, I forget who he's with at that time. They they pretend to have like an apartment, and they have a TV and they bring the guy and they they put certain things in the TV to see, you know, they break something in the TV to see if that's what they fix and that's all they fix. And I thought, okay, I buy that. That that's yep. that that's something. So I thought maybe this was the way talent agencies worked in the I mean, TV is here, it's a new thing, mm-hmm. you know, and and maybe it's, you know, it would maybe. not surprise me a bit if uh if they did operate that way because they then the mob would just see this as another avenue yes, that they could yes. stretch their tent- tentacles into yes exactly yeah yep yep uh and uh and but but there are the, like moments where you see they do like a mo- what about that montage there's narration have we we haven't had narration before, i don't think so i and i noticed that too i thought that was i was struck by that precisely because i don't remember narration before yeah, it's like it's like Rex was narrating a moment where it was like, and the racket over the next few was it the next few weeks? I feel like it only took place over a couple of days, but over the next let's say over the next over the next eight hours, the racket went crazy, and you see like <laughs> montage like people beating people up. You see a car like driving down a like a like a studio uh, street, like mm-hmm. flip on. And they were very effective, and I thought, holy crap, what are they doing? That, that just surely someone surely the police must go like what is going on what what is this something's happening and we should I guess they don't though I don't well, know it must have it it must have been because there is another scene later on where uh where where there's a gunman now, I'm not going to go into the detail as to how this happens but there's a gunman and he's driving off and Cal is shooting at him and you see people on the yes. street just walking like nothing is happening and um yeah it's one of the <laughs> it's one of the pleasures of television being made in the 50s and 60s is that that kind of detail you don't always see although sometimes you do see people start running in abject horror but people are just strolling down the street like this is a commonplace occurrence so um apparently the uh, the mob did make their mark on this town thing people yes. Then people are saying you know you, you can see George and Edna walking down the street and Edna <laughs> says and more gunfire, George. And George says, eh, we don't have to worry about it. It's just them TV stars getting shot up again. <laughs> TV says, we got to get home for Leave it to Beaver. Yeah. Come on. Move it, honey. Move it, honey. We, Don, we, Donna we Reed won't watch herself. Yeah. yeah, They're not after us. They're just yeah, they're after, after us. You know, those yeah, show they're... business folks. You know, because they, you know, we, we could tell because if we're in a scene and when we're talking, we're just mouthing words like we are right now, honey. Then we're extras, so we're going to be okay. <laughs> Well, and there's another scene actually later on where um, I think it is um, Rex that is tailing the bad guy, mm-hmm. and um, it, it of course we're in the bad guy's car, and you've got the rear projection stuff, yes. so you've got stock footage back there, and um, the one guy says he's right on our tail, and I thought to myself, well, he must be right on your tail because I can't see his car <laughs> back there at all, and. <laughs> So well, you're you're, be, you're the goon. Yeah, yeah you're, he is so close to you that I can't <laughs> even see him. So <laughs> hey, he, 
he's a, that's what he gets paid for. So yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, charming stuff of the time. It's uh, we yeah. can we can laugh about it uh, now, but obviously they did not have the ability to do some of the things that they're able to do today. So that's just it happens all the time. Yeah, and and like for example, like they have a little. Uh, little boat that the bad guys are in and when they're on one side of the boat you can see like a set and you know like or a space in a studio and when they're on the other side it's rear projection yeah so so it's like um, and and every time they went on that boat all i could think of was surfside six i don't know why <laughs> um and i thought you know what actually having seen several episodes of surfside six i prefer this boat because it's a lot less dumb but i've only seen like four episodes of surfside six <laughs> i don't mean to denigrate i think i denigrated surfside six like 19 episodes ago i i, I if it was one season mitchell and i would be talking about it yes we would i was just thinking that <laughs> it's two we'll, we'll do our um 77 sunset strip universe multiverse ah, podcast yeah. where we cover them and we do them in broadcast order oh my gosh think about that <laughs> it'd be tough tracking down all the episodes i, would I think actually i i um feel a book coming on oh my gosh wouldn't that that would be interesting i would think because i mean it's such a trendy show mm-hmm. that that i mean that i would think i mean i would think that's that's always why i thought that um like hawaii and i survived when bourbon street b didn't because it's hawaii and it's yeah. the end of the 50, you know, it's everyone's going crazy for Hawaii, whereas um, I guess they don't have the same feelings for New Orleans. I mean, they, it's exotic, but Hawaii was super exotic. Well, and despi- of course, despite despite Warner Brothers' best efforts to keep us in the dark about these series, all of them are available if you are willing to go to Places. Various lengths to obtain them. Yeah, they, they, yeah, you don't you don't have to act like you're part of the all star talent agency or whatever right. the, these people are. But you don't have to go that nefarious. But you, you know, you see, the, you got to look around a bit. Yeah, you, you you know, there there is something out there called the gray market. And yes. uh, if you were to make a visit into the gray market, which I heaven forbid would ever uh, <laughs> encourage anyone to do, mm-hmm. but if if one in a hypothetical universe were to do that, then then one would, in fact, be able to obtain all the episodes of all four of those uh, series, and I think there would be a great book in that somewhere. I think that's that's that does sound fascinating. Yeah, I because I, I um when I first sort of discovered that, and we're off on a tangent here, folks, but we'll be right back. It's us. So it's, it's a great. It's, it's yeah. It's us. It's and it's a it's a great episode. I mean, I I don't think we. I mean, I don't know if it's the absolute best, but I would say of the nineteen, it's it's top three. Maybe it's definitely fun. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um. Uh, but I, I think um, uh, I, I think when I first I had heard of 77 Sunset Strip but not paid attention to it until I think I, maybe I mentioned this 19 episodes ago until like five years ago when Warner Archive Instant put a, put a bunch of them up mm-hmm. and then I started watching them realized how much fun they were and then of course discovered Bourbon Street Beat and I was like I'm doing that and the, and the thing with Bourbon Street Beat is that just the fact like I've watched quite a bit of Hawaiian Eye I think that's the one I've watched the most of I don't mm-hmm. know why um, but it is uh, and I like Hawaiian Eye I, I you know I like the guys in it I like um, I forget the gal who's in it but she's but- great singing all the time Connie Stevens? Yes, she's, yes. Yeah, what kind? Yeah, she's great. And what is it, Anthony Isley and Robert Conrad, right? Yes. Is that right? Is that right? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, is that right? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, but but there, and, and the show is fun, but comparing it to Bourbon Street Beat at the same season, I prefer Bourbon Street Beat. I just think it's a sharper show. I think, mm-hmm. that, like the, I think that the writers are, are the writing is better. Um, and I actually prefer the lead characters, too. 
the other lead characters, and they don't, I mean, they do push the New Orleans thing, but they really push the Hawaiian thing and Hawaiian Eye, to the point where, uh, it's it's like when, um, uh, like if you watch it, the first season of Laverne and Shirley, Mm -hmm. they really push the fact that we're in the 50s and I mean they they do that in Happy Days 2 in the first season but if you go Laverne and Shirley they really overdo it almost at times where it's like we're in the 50s in the 50s we did this and we did it's like okay I got it I got it you you, you can stop now and just tell your story Um, and Hawaiian Eye kind of does that Bourbon Street Beat I think it incorporates it in better I think uh, so too, because uh, you, 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 this is the city. This is the way uh, New Orleans is, or at the very least, it's the way people perceive New Orleans to yes. be. And what they do is make it clear that um, that uh, sometimes, sometimes the city becomes a character in the story. Sometimes it doesn't, but it's clear even when they're doing a fairly typical episode oh say ripping off a movie like the uh, the big heat um <laughs> even, even when they're doing that though there's a a fairly unique spin to it that is specifically um because of the location mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and um yeah, I, and I feel bad that uh, that it only lasted one season. But then again, if it had lasted two, we wouldn't be spending so much that's, time talking about it. That's right. That this is uh, kismet. Yes. Uh, so, uh, what else do you have for this one? Like I said, I think it's a great episode. I'm going to scan my notes to see what I got. Oh, you know, I love uh, Marie Windsor. Yes. Yeah. She's so nasty. Oh my gosh, the look she has on her face when they start beating up the Baron. You learn why she's so thrilled about dancers getting beaten later on but when the baron start gets starts getting beaten and she has that look on her face it's sort of like it has a slightly different yeah this um, is one sadistic chick yes yeah yeah Mm-hmm. Well, and there, there's a very nice scene too. If you if you blink a couple of times, you'll miss it. But when when uh, Marie Windsor and uh, her um, inamorata is that uh, who is the uh, character uh, what, that what is, is that? His, it's uh, is it I Gray? Think, Gray Gray that could Gray be Gordon. A, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. when when uh, when uh they are going into this club there's a doorman there and the doorman mentions that the little dog isn't allowed that she's got and so uh, you know she has him because they have clout she has him walk the dog while they're in the club and she feeds him a little green on the side and that takes care of that um but uh that the doorman is played by Sandy Koufax oh Wow. And this is this is Koufax's second appearance in the series. He was in an earlier episode where there was a, um, a, a, a no, no, I'm sorry. The other episode he was in was 77 Sunset Strip. Oh, really? Where, okay. Where he go. played a policeman. He played a policeman when there was a brawl at a dance hall. Uh-huh. And um, uh, my wife turned to me and she said, was he big at this point? Well, mm-hmm. You know, he had pitched for the Dodgers in the 1959 World Series, but he had not yet become Sandy Koufax. He was a good pitcher, but he was not a 
great picture. He was not the great dominating, overwhelming picture pitcher that he became. He was just a pitcher whom they had identified that had a lot of potential, and he was perhaps starting to make his mark. Of course he did if he was pitching in the World Series. Yes. But he wasn't the Koufax that you'd see in 63, 64, 65, 66, throwing the, the no-hitters and winning 27 games a season. This will, however, come into play at some point in the future when Koufax and his um, sidekick, Don Drysdale, who was the other great pitcher at the time for the Dodgers, they stage a joint holdout for a bigger contracts. And um, the threat that they are using is that they will go into a TV if uh, they don't get the uh, don't get the money, and uh, so both of them, uh, we see Koufax. I don't know when if we'll ever see a show that Drysdale is in on the stuff that we're watching, but both of them are using this as leverage, and it uh, it doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> Um, they 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 do wind up going back to the Dodgers and they sign for less than what they were hoping to get. And uh, if there are any baseball fans out there listening to this, I'm sure I'm boring the rest of you to tears. But <laughs> but um, Koufax, for his last season, I think it is in 1966, he comes back to the Dodgers. The holdout has failed. He's acted in a couple of things, but he's clearly not going to be a great actor. And he goes straight into the season with no spring training whatsoever, wins 27 games (laughs) for the Dodgers and throws a number of, a number of complete games that you would not believe nowadays because pitchers never complete starts anymore, but he's got something like 30 complete games for the season and an earned run average under two. Uh, He is just overwhelming in that season and he does it without any spring training. Now, if Koufax had been half the actor that he is (laughs) was a pitcher. We might be looking at this as a pilot for the new Sandy Koufax. <laughs> but it's it's a nice it's a nice little uh touch having well, Koufax uh, as as the doorman. That is cool. I did not know that at all. Uh, that was fantastic. Yeah, I was too busy going, Marie Windsor, I haven't watched Catwoman on the Moon in ages. <laughs> or is it is it of the moon or on the moon? I always forget. I feel like it's of the moon, but I gotta look it up. But um uh and I just I got the I got the episode playing here and um why why do I love Lusty? Um because well this is this is that awful moment where um is it Vinny King or Benny King? I kept sometimes I have Benny, sometimes I have Vinny, the comedian. Oh Vinny. Vinny Vinny King. Vinny, yes. There's 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 a moment where like um some sort of waitery M C E type guy um oh he hands the phone to to Vinny because Vinny's gal has been beaten up. And as the the guy who handed Vinny the phone is walking like left across the screen. He passes Lusty, who's in her robe in her costume, and um, she turns and says something to the guy who's who's going off screen. And her 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 robe kind of goes off to one side, and you can see she's wearing like um not like a bikini, but like a you know a, a leotardy thing, and she's got her uh, stockings on and stuff. She looks fantastic, and she kind of looks at him, and she kind of does a little thing with her behind, like oop. Just the kind of up in the air right there, like that's why we love Lusty. That's why we love Lusty. And yes, we just, do. Like even in the even in the final 
nightclub sequence when they're going to finally catch these guys and Rex and Cal are like okay you know this place is filled with cops well they don't say do they say that but there are cops here they intimated yeah yes and Rex and Cal walk in and they're like okay what's you know let's do this we're gonna all right we're gonna take care of this and Lusty's like he's like even even when they throw a smoke bomb and she's underneath the table she has a look on her face like, I am having the time of my yes, life. Yes, absolutely. You can tell that she likes to be where the action is. Yes, and she's always, unlike, say, um, uh, Marie Windsor's character, who just seems unhappy and nasty. Mm-hmm. She, she was a dancer, and she never made it, so she likes seeing dancers get the crap beat out of them. Uh, Lusty is the exact opposite of that. Lusty l- has a lust for life. I don't know. That was on um, Turner Classics. Just <laughs> yes, the other day. I it was saw Kirk, that. Kirk Douglas' birthday. Um, uh, I think. Yeah. Um, and but but Marie, Marie Windsor's character is the exact opposite. And even there's even a scene when she dances on the boat. Where it's kind of like hey, she was okay, you know. And I uh, can I just I I don't I I hate, I hate to spoil it, but um, it, suffice to say she does get. Um, caught in the end yes and there is a moment when she gets caught and basically she has a conversation with her guy there who says like well you weren't a very good dancer that's why i couldn't sell you to people and she's like, i was a great dancer <laughs> da, da, da. and then something happens in the end and you just get a moment with this guy like looking at her after she has reached whatever her end is and I know that sounds ominous, and actually it is kind of <laughs> ominous. But there's just a great moment where he's kind of looking at her, and he's not doing that well either. And he says, "You are a bad dancer, <laughs> the worst." <laughs> and it's just like those. It's like That's it's like great... one, of, one of the things with the episodes is like, um, uh, you you went after Vinnie King because he laughed at you once when you were dancing. Well, I got the last laugh on him. Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of thing of like getting the last thing in, and just like that's the ultimate one. Where it's like you know. Yeah, the worst and it's 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 good stuff um let's see we got narration we got oh here's something um when they're um they're all trying to find out what's going on with this talent agency and no one will really talk and there is a very interesting moment where they talk with the guy who runs the absinthe house and uh, who I, i don't think we've ever seen before i don't think we have either yeah, he seems like a nice guy, but he's mm-hmm. kind of worried that these these guys are coming in. But actually, I was going to say, there's a moment where the gang, Rex, Cal, and, and Lusty are sitting at a table, and no one's getting inf- any information out of it. And Lusty says, ah, it's like a big clam chowder. Nobody wants to talk. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Does that mean, is that, was that like something, at, like in 1960, would everyone I... have gone, ha-ha! I, I I don't know if it's that or just kind of a lustyism, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> we all write those down. Why are we writing we the lustyism we down? <laughs> well, speaking of uh, of lusty, there was another a nice bit of continuity in here that when she first comes to the agency and the to the detective agency, um, Melody is completely different in yes. welcoming her from the way she used to. You know, it's like, Lusty, it's great to see you again. And you remember, there'd been this chill that, uh, not, not between the two of them, because Lusty does, isn't that way, but Melody had always been kind of suspicious of her, but she welcomes her with open arms, and that just has to be a continuation from the relationship that had been established between the two of them in the last episode when they were in trouble and Kenny was trying to get them out of find, trouble. Find, find my face. Yeah. Yeah. Find my face. yeah. So that's a nice bit of continuity 
1992. It would not have made any sense if for any reason those two episodes had had to be reversed. Yes, yeah, because yeah, it's it's uh that that and that's actually that the Lusty's arrival and find my face at the thing is what sends Melody off on her journey that ends yes. up getting her kidnapped. These aren't spoilers, folks. Getting her kidnapped and ends up with her and Leslie like learning dance moves together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what when, when, when that great moment where Kenny storms in and his hands are covered in bandages because he saved two people's <laughs> lives and his hands are horribly burned in steam. And there's his gal and this other gal and they're learning dance moves. Hi, Kenny. How are you? Look at my arms. My beautiful Van Williams arms. What will the Green Hornet do? I would have to go to Gotham and and have Bruce Wayne get me the best surgeons to try to help me out here or something. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, no, that, that that's yeah. You know, I I I saw that moment too, and that because doesn't it start off with her being like, um, "Oh, Miss Weathers, how are you? I told you, call me Lusty." And yeah. then even even as she's saying. Uh, as they're walking into the sort of the um, that that kitchen office area that I love with the spiral staircase, I want an office like that uh, where they walk in and Melody says, uh, "Gentlemen, Miss um, Weathers is here, Lusty," and it's it's nice. It's it's really it is. They're really um, building the and it's nice too because you have those moments in an episode that is frankly kind of nasty, mm-hmm. and 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 so that you're able to have those character moments in with the plot which i think works out i think i i will say my one of my favorite rex i mean that moment where he puts the gun to the guy's head oh, again and great. again is just like wow that's like that, i mean because because literally it's like he's standing there with the gun and you see like not a close-up quite like a medium shot on the on the guy's uh head and he's up against the wall uh his head and like his 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 chest and then all of a sudden you just see the gun mm-hmm. go right up to his head you know it's sort of it's it's like Tell me what's going on. Don't shoot me. I'll tell you. Okay. And the gun comes down. Now tell me this. I can't. The gun goes yep. back up. And, and you know, you know that Rex isn't going to shoot him because that's not the way television is in 1960. But yes. what Richard Long does so well in this scene is that he sells you on the idea that he's capable of this, even though you know that it isn't going to happen. Yes. And the guy is so frightened. Yeah. The guy just looks absolutely like. Uh, you know, these people came into town and they strong armed me a bit and they offered me some money and I just said whatever and I wasn't paying attention and it came back to me and I, they'll kill me and this, that and the other thing and they'll bring the cat women down on me. No, Marie Windsor wasn't one of the cat women. She was the astronaut. I'm sorry about that, folks. I, there'll be a giant spider that lowers on them. Did I ever tell you I saw that? I saw that uh, in 3D on the big screen. Really? Wow. I, I saw that on a weekend. I saw Gorilla at Large oh. with Anne Bancroft and Raymond Burr. Mm-hmm. I saw Robot Monster and that one. Whoa. All, all incredible. Robot Monster is, a, is if, if you know, it's one of the cheapest things you'll ever see. Yeah. The 3D, the 3D ain't bad. It's actually huh. pretty good. And the, the Catwoman of the Moon, that sequence where they're in the cave and the spider lowers down on them, the, the spider is in like 3D. And it, it's so, so you're watching them cross the screen and then all of a sudden like eight black hairy legs in 3D begin to lower from the top of the screen and you could see people looking at the bottom of the screen suddenly look up and go ah! and, and it's a big fake spider but still for a, for a second we're terrified yeah, yeah. Uh, but and she's great in that because that movie is one of the has one of the most beautifully dumb scripts ever I think and everything about that is just a joy um but but that's Marie Windsor I like her uh so what um 
What else do you have for this? I'll do a scan. I think, I think I, I'm almost at the I, end. I um, would just uh, reiterate what I said at the beginning, which is that this is a terrific episode. It's a yes. lot of fun to watch. And uh, I, is it the best episode? Well, it's got to be one of the two or three best that we've mm-hmm. seen. But so far, yeah. it delivers on everything that it needs to to be a successful episode of a TV series. Yes, yes, and it gives us, and it gives us with, uh, uh, with the personal uh, edge to it too, because our characters that we love are being threatened, yes. and other characters that we love have to save them. So that's that's always nice to see. And you did you didn't always see a lot of at this time. I mean, obviously in sitcoms, you know, every week the beef was getting a bad haircut or something. But but in shows like this, you didn't really see no. that. No, and. Um, Oh, I guess so. That's that's the ten percent blues, and it all ends with the Baron singing a fun song called the Ten Percent Blues, which is which is a good time. <laughs> um, so, Mitchell, where uh, where can where can I find John Line? Don't whisper um, it, whisper it, like an, <laughs> like an extra on, on the on the New yeah, Orleans. I, I, I'm a, I'm a, it's about TV dot com. Nice. Do you do you have a book? I do. It's called the Electronic Mirror. I'd, I'd like you to whisper the whole thing, the the whole the where we've been, where I am, why it hurts, all that stuff. What uh, what what classic TV <laughs> tells you about who we were and who we are and everything in between? I think the thing is, when you whisper stuff, sometimes you forget what you're talking about. <laughs> I think the whispering is so. But um, I so so we're gonna wrap this one up here, folks. And I just I just I'm gonna end with this again. And if anyone knows what it is, I've just said in my next two sentences when I'm done talking right here. Please tell me. But I'm just gonna say, Mitchell, it's like a big clam chowder. Nobody wants to talk. <laughs> All right, gang, it's Dan again. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Ah, uh, Now, where can you find us online? What is it? eSuperTrain at Yahoo.com, at eSuperTrain1 on Twitter, eventually SuperTrain on our Facebook page, eventually SuperTrain.blogspot.com is the website. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. You found us at one of those. Let's see what else is going on. Uh, I'm on a uh, made-for-TV mayhem show with my friends Amanda and Nate. I'm on a show called Podcast Mania. I'm currently doing One Minute with European Zombies, circa 1980. You can find that in the eventually Super Train feed. What else is going on? I got a couple books. Bleeding Skull, 1980s Trash Horror Odyssey, 80s Action Movies on the Cheap. I'm hanging around. I'm having a good time. I'm hoping you guys are enjoying the show. Any any uh, feed, feedback is always appreciated. And I guess leave a leave a comment somewhere. Maybe iTunes if you enjoyed the show or whatever. Uh, I, I, would, um, I would greatly appreciate it. But uh, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And that's me signing off. And now it's time for a very smooth hour of Nordic music. And we are beginning with a lovely song called Far Away From The Sun from the album of the same name from a band called Sacramentum. Enjoy. <laughs>